What is happening, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to the 182 News Podcast. This is your host, Poppin' Curbs, and I appreciate you tuning in to another episode. Today, we're joined by an extremely special guest. This is a rad one, not gonna lie. Joined by Rick DeVoe, who managed Blink for a long time. It was such a pleasure to hear his perspective and stories. We talk about the early days. I mean, this is late 1994. They weren't even Blink-182 yet. They were still going by Blink. So it was so cool to kind of pick his brain on on what he was thinking at the time and the thought process behind some of their moves. I'm just so appreciative of him taking the time to do this. He does not do a lot of these interviews, so it really is a special treat. We even get into how a few years ago he thought he was done managing until he was inspired by his daughter to kind of get back into it. So really appreciate him taking the time to come on the podcast and open up a little bit about his past. If this is your first time listening, I'm just a Blink fan. And I launched this pod a few years ago just to create a fun, positive place to talk about this band that means so much to us. And I wanted to get cool history and tell cool stories. So I'm always just so thankful of these guests taking time out of their day to come on and and hang out with all of us. I'm just a Blink fan trying to do rad shit for other Blink fans. So again, I want to thank you all for tuning in. I want to thank uh, Rick for taking time out of his day to do this podcast. Be sure to follow the at 182 News Pod Instagram page. That's typically where I'm posting things and, and future episodes and such. So be sure to give that a follow. Can't wait to hear what you all think about this episode. Hit me up once you're done listening. And I'm not going to waste any more of your time. Let's jump right into this. This is my conversation with Rick DeVoe. Really hope you enjoy it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, now joining us on the 182 News Podcast, longtime promoter, band manager, and longtime presenter of Big Dummy Jams, the one and only Rick DeVoe. Rick, how are you? Hey, what's up, man? Stoked to be here. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Yeah, man. I appreciate you taking the time to hop on. I started this pod a couple years back, and I just wanted to share rad history about the band and share some cool stories. And Dude, at the very beginning, you were one of the people that I was like, if I could just talk to Rick one day, I'm sure he's got some gold. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but uh, I definitely had some fun times with the boys. For sure, for sure. So I want to start out, man. Uh, I don't know a ton about your background and really how you got into promoting and managing bands. So if you don't mind, give us a little bit of an origin story on on what led you down that path. Yeah, um, it was pretty simple. Uh I was obsessed with surfing and my whole world was surfing and that's all I did. I went to, in high school and just, just, I grew up surfing Malibu and, and I just loved it. And then I, when I was in high school, I started uh, the surf club at my high school and I was the president and we needed to raise money because I wanted to put on a, uh, a contest I was really obsessed with surfing contests, like the professional ones. And so I put on a, uh, a noontime concert with my friend's band called the Checks, which they were like this like mod band, this mod ska band in like literally like 1985. And we, we put this show on in my in the multi-purpose room at my high school. 
and all the all the kids showed up in the in there and my friend's band was playing and a slam pit broke out and my principal freaked out and, and like the whole thing just went chaotic and and he's like shut this down shut this down and then like when it all shut down and everything was like you know kind of went south i was like that was the most badass thing i ever did in my life and so <clears throat> i was like wow, wow that was really cool um so i kind of uh got into promoting shows in the hollywood area that were surf movie premieres and I would, my very first show was at the Whiskey A Go Go in Hollywood, and it was called The Big Dummy Jam. And we premiered a surf movie, and I got hold of some bands that were like kind of popular in the area. And I, I literally sold out the whiskey. 450 people all came in from Malibu, Topanga Beach, Santa Monica, Oxnard, and they all came down. And the owner of the club was just like, dude who are these people how did you get all these people to come to hollywood and this is insane and so he started letting me have like friday and saturday night options at the whiskey in the 80s which was like kind of gnarly to get you, you, you know like that that was like a hard thing to get and then slowly the surf movies i was promoting were getting more and more popular and i was working with bigger directors and then i started uh, working with bands that were on the soundtrack of these movies. Uh, the director in particular, his name was Taylor Steele. And there's a documentary, I believe, on Netflix called The Momentum Generation. And the Momentum movies was when I was in it. So I basically took Taylor's movies and I promoted them in, in all the beach areas because I wanted to just go surfing and figure out a way to get people to pay for me to be able to go surf in Hawaii and up the coast in California and in Florida and New York and then all the way to Australia and so on. And I just got so obsessed with working with these top tier companies like Billabong and Quicksilver and Volcom and then getting to work with Epitaph and all the bands at the time, uh, which was Pennywise and Bad Religion and uh, Rancid. So I started promoting these surf movie premieres that had on their soundtracks was like no effects and Pennywise and, and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden I just had this niche. Like I just, I'm fast forwarding here. No, you're fine. Right? Yeah. Um, and so I was promoting these shows. They were so bitching, dude. They were so much fun. And I, the best thing about it was I was getting like all this free stuff, like from the sponsors, like, you know, rusty surfboards and billable, like, oh, DeVoe, here, I want to set you up. You know, and I'm just like, dude, I can never afford this stuff. And <laughs> all of a sudden, I'm getting free wetsuits, board shorts, shirts. It was insane. And then I started managing a band called Unwritten Law. Uh, they're from San Diego. Um, and from there, I started plugging them into a bunch of these relationships I had as making as a promoter. and then I got hired by a promoter in San Diego named Bill Silva. He he was a big time promoter. Like he was doing like the Rolling Stones and, and stuff. And the reason why he reached out to me was because at the time I had kind of the in on the offspring and mm -hmm. the offspring was blowing up. Like, dude, when was that? Like, I don't even know, like in the, 
in the 90s, um, early 90s, like 92, 93, right in there. And so he called me and he tried to get the offspring, but he couldn't do it because they're like, no, they only they only play for this kid in San Diego named Rick DeVoe. And then they called me like, dude, you're hired. You want a job? And I was like, <laughs> you mean I can get paid to promote shows? And they're like, yeah, you can call Big Dummy Productions. You can do however you want. We don't even care. I was like, Rick, let's do it. So I got hired there. And then like, I'm not kidding you. I swear, like, I don't know, maybe like a week later or maybe a month later. I don't know. Um, I had already, I had a bunch of shows under my belt. I had no doubt Sublime, you know, with Bradley, multiple Sublime shows, Green Day. I mean, everybody. And this kid walks in, he's 18 years old. They're like, oh, this kid wants to see you. His name's Tom. And I'm like, okay, yeah, have him come in. You know, I have this like big desk and like, I just felt so weird, but at the same time, it was kind of cool. And he's like, hey, what's up? My name's Tom. I'm in this band called Blink. And you put on all the best shows and we'd love for you to manage us. And he was 18 years old. He uh, worked for a cement truck company. And I think he got kicked out of fire academy or something. And real tall kids, hair bleached out. And I was like, yeah, I heard of your band. Um, yeah, so you're three piece, right? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, cool. I'll manage you. I, I said yes to him side and scene. Never even seen a Blink show. And I had no idea, dude. I mean, I had no idea. I had no idea where that was going to lead me. And I just said, yeah, I just went with my gut. He was cool. And we're all stoked. And, and I have a piece of paper somewhere. I posted it on my Instagram. He wrote his name down. And he's all Tom Blink pop punk rock band in his phone <laughs> number. I posted it on my Instagram. If you dig through it, you'll find it. Um, and I still have it uh, to this day. It's funny as that is. And so I just started plugging Blink into all these surf shows that I had. And the thing was, all the surfers really liked Tom and Mark and Scott because they were so funny. And everyone loved being around there. Every, I don't know, it was really cool. And then one of the biggest breaks I got was I got, I convinced Pennywise and Taylor Steele to take Blink to Australia. And I don't know how I pulled that off. I think I got that done in a jacuzzi somewhere talking to Fletcher. I, I don't remember. <laughs> I just somehow convinced their camp to do this. And I was producing these shows, so that helped. And then... Dude, we go over to Australia. I'm over here with Blink. They 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 really had only never even played out of San Diego. I think I got on some shows in LA, Las Vegas, Phoenix. I mean, I seriously don't think it went much farther than that. Um, and we went over there, and their label, Cargo Records, had us had a, a partnership through a distrib distributor called Mushroom Records. And so we get over there and we had like a a press lady her name is liza she's awesome she actually ended up working for me and they there's a label and so we started we, they came to the show we, we did really well playing with pennywise and then like four or five months later i rebooked it to go back to follow up on playing that show with our own shows and dude the shows were like selling out at like 200 cap rooms oh man and then the song connected on triple j radio in australia in Australia, broke Blink-182. Like, I've always loved that. Ones. Like, 
with the exception of Mike Halloran and 91X, who, who was playing them in San Diego, but that entire cut, they broke and they, they literally, because they didn't really break in San Diego at that point. Mike was playing them, but Australia broke them. And there was like crazy fans. And, you know, once again, dude, none of this would have happened if I wasn't a freaking obsessed with surfing. I surf every day. I surf today. I, everything in my life is based around it. And everything I have is because of it. And my love for punk rock, my love for ska, mod music, all that stuff played into this. And I just went on to promoting shows, uh, you know, surf, skate, snow events. I, I, I took Blink to Alaska, played them with, with Offspring, and they toured all over the place. And it was just really badass. But that's kind of how I got into all of it. And I'm still pretty true to it even today. That's so wild, man. So it I, is, I want, dude, it is. I trip I, out on it too. I gotta ask, what's the origin story of the big dummy, the big dummy jam? Where did that come from? All right. So in high school, all the, 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 it was your classic '80s high school. It was in El Camino High School in Woodland Hills, the school where Bad Religion went to. All the Bad Religion guys went to my high school. Um, Sylvester Stallone's wife was the head cheerleader at my high school. Like she was gorgeous. Uh, I forgot her name, whatever her name is, Jennifer something. Uh, like, I don't know, it was just straight out of a movie. And and there was the surfers. And then there was this like jock group. And then there was this other group we called the JCs. They were known as the Junior Crips. There were a bunch of white kids, suburban kids that were endorsed by the Crips. Oh, shit. The real Crips. Yeah. And, and I think it, I mean, when I go back and think about it now, what I think it was partially, I think it had something to do with drugs. I don't know. You know, like getting drugs into the suburban schools. But I have no idea. But anyways, there was these cliques. And in the surfers, <clears throat> for some reason, we were all really tall and lanky. And we would always just do stupid stuff. And so, like, on like on the classic Friday night after football games, everyone would conjugate in the shopping center. And one night, this like semi, this Vons truck started taking off and we're just all, dude, let's run and jump into the back of that thing. It'd be so funny. <laughs> and the truck was going pretty fast, but we run and jump and the truck slammed on its brakes and we hit the back of the thing and slammed down. And then all the jocks are like, oh, you freaking big dummies, you know, like blah, blah, blah. And then we just thought that was so funny because, like, we just would never think we would jump or we do stuff without thinking about it because we were kind of d big dummies. And we <laughs> it kind of stuck. And and then uh, I decided to call my concerts the Big Dummy Jams because it was all my surfer buddies that would come to these shows we would give out free surfboards, free wetsuits, and like we would say, like, all right, the first one that gets up here and hangs a BA to the crowd gets a free surfboard. <laughs> like 30 of my friends up there just showing their ass and like in the diving back in the crowd. And it was just like stuff like that. It was just really weird, kind of goofy stuff. And that's where it came from. I love it. I love it. So Tom walks in to your office. You had never heard of Blink at that point, hadn't heard any of their music. I never heard their music, but being a promoter in San Diego, I heard of Blink. Okay. Um, 
only because I was always at Soma. Soma was is was was the famous club to this day that I actually have my bands uh, sitting on Stacey Nockwardall's playing there this Saturday. Um, it's pretty sick. I'm actually really excited about it. But Soma's been in the mix forever. And so when I would go and flyer for my shows, I would see like maybe like a flyer like Blink and it would have like this little rabbit or Blink side stage playing with like, you know, opening up first of four for like P.O.D., you know, like a band, yeah. like, you know, kind of, you know, they were just like every other opening band. So timeline wise, and this is something that we've been trying to figure out, there's picture proof of you at Soma for the Cheshire Cat release party. You're on stage yeah. next to Tom. Uh, that's February 1995. Do you happen yep. to recall when this meeting with Tom was? It couldn't have been too much longer before that. No, I was actually, now that you're saying that, I was I was thanked in the Cheshire Cat record. So I want to say I got hired at Bill Silva's in like August of 94. Okay. And right around August of 94, maybe July 94. And then I want to say Tom probably walked into my office in like maybe October or November of 94, somewhere okay. there. Yeah, that makes sense. That's probably, that's right where we think Cheshire Cat was basically being finished. Yeah, yeah, they were, they were working, uh, I think it was with, oh, um, he was, a, he, he produced, he was in a band called Fluff, and yeah. they were on Cargo Records, and so, oh, was like the guy, you know, he was, he was the guy, and, and um, they were making that record, and I got involved before the record was finished, and, and uh, yeah, it was really cool. So when you become manager at that time, and this is for folks like myself, I just genuinely don't know what a music manager does. What is all of a sudden your day-to-day -day work for Blink starting then? So, first of all, I always believe that the best managers are managers that were promoters. Because when, when you're a promoter, you have to come up with an idea. You have to build it. And then you've got to sell it. And then you've got to make sure it sells through. And there's a creative process involved in that. <clears throat> when you manage a band, I mean, that's it, dude. I, like, if, if you would see my list that I do, I'm still very old school, but, like, I just have lists like this. This is my oh, typical list. That one says Aquadolls right there, you know? Like, I got ones for sitting on Stacy and, and, and everything. I just get up early in the morning and I just figure out every single thing I could possibly do to promote my band. If, if, if there's a long shot, if there's a long shot, I'm going to give it a shot. I mean, I just nailed down the Incubus Sublime tour for the Aquadolls. Do you know how, like, dude, that's happening this summer in sheds because of an idea I had. Wow. And I just, it just, you know, and that's no different than like, I remember when, when I got Angels and Airways on the Foo Fighters shows in, in the UK. Dude, let's take Chris with surfing. He loves surfing. We got surfing. He's like, dude, this is so rad. Raps in life. He's like, you know, dude, what's going on? What, you know? And I'm like, man, I really would love to get Angels and Airways to play with you <laughs> in the UK. And yeah. sure enough, we landed the Hyde Park shows, which, Tom is playing in front of like 70,000 people 
And I swore that thing came about because of a surf trip. And yeah. it's no different than getting Blake on those early shows with Pennywise. It's passionate things that I'm passionate about or my friends is, and, and I would go those routes. And I just won't stop. I just, it's promote, promote, promote. That's what managers do. Plus they manage once you get, you know, more technical, like I just, I've been on calls all day today with Republic Records for sitting on Stacy, their major label. And when Blink was younger, we dealt all the times with Cargo. And then they got, we got them signed to MCA. And MCA has like all these different divisions from, you know, artist development to A&R to you name it, you know? Yeah. And you have, as a band manager, you not only have to promote your bands and make sure they're getting good tours and stuff, but you also got to make sure that the people that are invested in you absolutely love you as a manager and love the band. Yeah. And if, if you don't have that, I just feel like it, you're not going to get the people to go the extra mile for you. And, and I was able to do that with MCA. Like we, I was able to get those people, those folks at MCA to go the extra mile, spend the extra dollars, spend the extra time. They have rosters they got to work, but they would always, they love working with us because I didn't believe in like punching and like, yeah, yeah, you know, you got to do this for my band or whatever threats. I was more like shakas and like, yeah, dude, what's up, bro? Like, no, you want to call Mark and Tom? Call him, man. I, it's open door. We, I want you to feel ownership here. Yeah. I want you to feel there's this barrier and I'm in control. <clears throat> and with that said, Blink went on to have really great relationships at the record label. And I had great relationships. And so whenever I wanted something, I would get it because I think just because I was really cool to everybody. And so was, so was the band. That's my secret sauce. I like it. I appreciate you sharing that. 1995, you know, the band's kind of Cheshire Cat releases. They've got you involved. There's a there's a booking agency, the Tahoe Agency. I've always heard this referred to as a real big moment in 1995. They bring you on as well as the Tahoe Agency. What can you tell us about them? I don't know much about them other than just they're a booking agency. <laughs> what right, role well, do they play? It's, it's, it's very, very cool. So because I was a promoter, I was obsessed with mod music, ska, the specials, madness, the untouchables, the English beat, like obsessed. And that's actually how I segued into punk rock. So when I became a promoter, not only was I promoting surf movie premieres with bands that were in it, once I got hired to Bill Silva, I was now able to promote mod shows, ska shows. And I was able to put on shows with bands that I really enjoyed, like the Toasters, Skank and Pickle. Um, these were bands in Sublime. These were bands that I was buying shows from, from the Tahoe Agency. So when I picked up the band uh, as manager, part of the job you got to do, Ryan, is you've got to build the infrastructure. You want to have a winning NBA team? Well, you can't just have five average Joes. You've got to have like 
five rad players, you know what I mean? So yeah. plus a good bench. So I had to build a team and I knew because Blink had nothing except us at the time <clears throat> and they had some momentum in San Diego. I had to sell them. I had to sell them. Fortunately, pop punk rock was right up for the freaking shopper. I mean, it was like, it was ready to blow up. It was pre, it was just this side of it. So, so Blink had some um, good timing. So since I was a promoter, I had access to a bunch of agents that I was buying shows from. And they loved me because I was like, I was just, I was promoting these shows out of passion. Yeah. And there were some really good agents that I pitched. One in particular, who I'm still good friends with today, still kicks himself that he he turned me down. <laughs> and I'm not going to say his name. <laughs> um, so Rick Bondi, who ran the Tahoe agency, was booking Sublime, Skanky Pickle, and all these ska bands that I was I was buying from him. And I said, hey, Rick. You know, I called him up one day and I go, hey, I got this band Blink and I need an agent and this is what I'm going to do with them. And I sold him the idea of working with a punk band when he didn't have a punk band. Mm. I go, Rick, you're all weighed over. And I kind of vaguely remember this, but I was like, look, dude, you got all your eggs in this one basket in the ska thing, which is cool. And ska punk really took off shortly after that. Obviously, oh, yeah. with those bands I mentioned. Um, and so I sold them on the fact of having a punk rock band. And it was cool because we were the only punk rock band on his on his agency roster. Now, obviously, the Tahoe agency isn't CAA or William Morris. You know what I mean? It, it, they're not. But there were he was a boutique agent that was getting shows for his band when live shows were flourishing. And he bit and that's how they got on there in a fun fact um rick's assistant this young girl super cool lived in lake tahoe she's so nice to us and always would like help us get whatever we need her name was Corey uh christopher well Corey christopher now books imagine dragons oh wow and Corey christopher's husband manages rise against and pepper and, and a bunch of stuff and Corey lives one mile from here and my daughter is her day-to-day nanny oh my gosh yeah it's, it's so crazy how things work out sometimes dude it's it's so cool man it's like i've got i've got i i'm really proud of my whole thing it's just so authentic and 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 everything but yeah I, i'm i'm that's exactly how it happened and then and then the tahoe agency thing came to an end in i think in 99. gotcha so august 1995 uh still known as blink but that's about to come to an end how do you yeah. get word that there's an irish band that uh that doesn't want you all going by that anymore how does that conversation kind of get started you know that is one thing that i can say if you're a manager 
before you manage any band, make sure they've got their trademark in place. <laughs> you know, I was a young manager, you know, I was a promoter turned manager. Um, I hadn't crossed that bridge yet with trademarks and stuff. And I was still had a lot to learn. But yeah, you know, we were off and running and and uh, Cheshire Cat was released as Blink. And then, you know, we get we hired a we, we uh, Bill Silva hooked us up with a really great lawyer, Mitch Tenzer, who we actually ended up working with through the entire career. I don't know. I don't know if he still represents Mark now, but um, I don't think he does. But 20 years, you know, with with this attorney and then like one of their first things they sent over, like, oh, uh, we have a cease and desist on the name of your band after we just did a deal. I I can't remember. Wait, this was 95. I, I can't remember. Maybe I think we signed MCA maybe in like 97 ish or 98 um I, I gotta go back it's been a while but you know getting that she was just like what yeah what it's like i would we had already been you know we'd done a bunch of touring and like what do you mean change our name like blink is the shit like what yeah and so dude you know if i could re go back i would i wish we were still just called blink um and then Mark, we I think Mark just came up with the number randomly. That's a story I've always heard as well. I just I didn't know from a manager standpoint. It's like you're just building this thing up. It seems to be taking off, and it's like ah shit. Yeah, <laughs> it sucks. It happened to me with a band we were managing called River Phoenix that ended up becoming called Phoenix TX. Same thing. We got River Phoenix Estate. <laughs> They're like, yeah, no. And then I managed another band called Red West, who I actually ended up getting on the Dave Matthews tours. I got them this huge record deal. Like, I did so good for them. Um, I partnered with my buddy Timmy Curran, who's also an artist. That's another success story. But I got a cease and desist from the Elvis Presley estate saying, because Red West was Red, uh, Elvis Presley's bodyguard. Oh my gosh. And it's just like, <laughs> nope. So we had to change our name to the Red West versus, I don't know. It was just, yeah. gotta be careful, kids. <laughs> so you talked about this a little bit earlier. So 96, you guys get over to Australia. And actually, on the podcast, I have a ton of listeners in Australia. They just, they fucking love Blink. And it's always been so they rad really to do. me. Because um, Australians the, are freaking rad. That's why. Yeah, every Australian I've ever talked to is just so rad. Um, the decision is made to go with MCA. This is kind of a, a pivotal point in the band. What do you recall about that point in time as far as suitors? Or, I mean, did you guys feel like you needed to, to jump to MCA? Or how did that play out? So, yeah. So this was a time in the business, which it doesn't really exist anymore that I see, where the DIY bands, the 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 Warp Tour bands, all the Epitaph, like if you went to a major label, they, they'd they'd shame you. They'd be like, "You freaking sell out and blah blah yeah. blah." Right. So, so what was happening at this time? Uh, rewind back, I think to '94. Uh, I was working at Bill Silva's office, or maybe it was '95. Might have been 95. You, you probably want to check 
me on this, but um, I'm now promoting all these pop punk rock bands. Like I'm the guy in the building. There's the country guys. There's the guys that are doing your mainstream artists, blah, blah, blah. But when it came to punk rock and ska, like that was my department in the building. And then one morning I, I was on the mailing subscription for Rolling Stone magazine. And lo and behold, they just, just plopped on my desk and they're like, holy shit, Rick. And it was Green Day on the cover mm. of Rolling Stone magazine. I was like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, there's a dude with blue hair singing, <laughs> you know, it was like, holy shit. So I grabbed the magazine and I run into my boss's office and I just slammed it on his desk. And I'm like, I freaking told you, look at this. Green Day's on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. That sort of opened the door for thinking outside of the box with majors that opened the door for majors to get in now with, with these indie bands. <clears throat> Trust me, no facts. They were courted. Offspring was courted and they went inside that major label deal. I think they went to Columbia. Bad religion went to Atlantic. Yeah. Everyone vacated Epitaph except Pennywise, which they were offered. All of them were offered. If you were a punk rock band and your shit was on, and you were doing stuff right, you got, Green Day opened the doors for that. And so we were right behind them. I mean, Green Day already made it. Like they were on Woodstock that year, I think. That was the year where all the mud was getting thrown at Billy Joe. And, you know, and, and it was just this like classic concert where you have this punk rock band on this mainstream revival festival that happened in the 60s but they're now part of the new the grunge is starting to you know the nirvana movement everything was like you know Soundgarden, all that it's like holy shit here comes punk rock yeah and and so we were on cargo records and it allowed us uh to take meetings with other labels and we did i i remember I, I remember getting you know driven around in limousine with tom wally's raddest dude he was like president of interscope it was before the jimmy Iovine days i believe uh it was interscope and he met us in a limousine in las vegas and we're driving around this limousine i'm like with blake I'm like this is crazy like he wanted to sign us um we went to epitaph records and what was so interesting was, dude, if this was like three years prior, I would have been all Mark, Tom, Scott, like we are going to Epitaph, like this is the shit. But three years later, which was like in 95, 90, whenever that was, I kind of spaced on when we did it. Um, I remember we walked through there and it was like a punk rock candy store. But I just remember Brett's, Brett Gerwitz's, I, I don't know, it's just something he was saying that. You know, I felt like we were going to be kind of lower on the total pole. You know, dude, there's rancids in front of us and no effects and yeah. offspring. He's, you know, and all these things and Pennywise. So we were we were going to be, you know, a small fish in a big punk rock pond. Um, so it was cool. We were super excited. But then 
MCA Records reached out. And I'll tell you, for me, what the big thing was. The president of MCA Records, his name is Jay Boberg. Now, I believe Cargo made a deal with MCA Records for an upstream. So if, if at that time, a lot of major labels were dipping in and trying to own these indie punk rock labels because like Sub Pop, Epitaph, they were all flourishing. So the, these major labels probably had meetings where they were like, we need to go buy a cool <laughs> indie label. Or we yeah. need to, we need, just go get one. So MCA did some sort of an upstream deal with Cargo. And we got on the radar at MCA because I believe the owner of Cargo, his name was Eric, he handed the Cheshire Cat CD to the A&R or the president. Fast forward, so we had a meeting and we met with Jay Boberg. And so I'm like, well, shit, I've got nothing to lose. I'm like, so Jay, tell me what you've done. And he goes, he's all, look, I signed the Go-Go's in the police. <laughs> okay, dude, Mark, Tom and Travis wouldn't really understand that as much as I did. Because when I was 16 years old, MTV just was coming out and I was like the biggest Go-Go's fan then. And I'm still the biggest Go-Go's fan today. That's why I signed the Aqua Dolls. Gotcha. Okay. When he said that and he, and I go, whoa, 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 tell me about IRS. Tell me everything about it. And he just, that's what I made him talk about. We walked out of there and I'm like, no, 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 no. This is where we're going. Like we have to go here. Dude, he, you guys don't get it, but the police was a three-piece. Yeah. And he knew how to break giant vans. He had an ear for it. And I just had this mad respect for Jay. And we signed there. And I'll never forget, maybe, I don't know, a year into the meeting, he's like, hey, Rick, come up here. You know, we lived in San Diego, so I had to drive to uh, Burbank a lot. I'm not Burbank, uh, Universal City. And he sat me down in his little outer room, and and he's like, you know, you've done such a great job uh, with all these tours you've got, the Warp Tour and everything. And and he goes, I'm going to tell you right now, he goes, your band will be headlining uh, the Universal Amphitheater this year. And I'm sitting here going like, wait, what? And he goes, yeah. He's all, it's going to happen. And I swear to you, it happened. And he knew with those songs, he knew that the way that his team he was building with his label, he knew it. He knew it. And, And sure enough, everything he said happened. Everything. There's there's two parts of that that have just always been fascinating to me. One is the whole sellout thing. And from what I gather and I've heard about that time, it was very real. I mean, it was it was was a big it was a big thing. So, you know, part of my my question for you is, you know, did you all feel that? Did it bother you? And it's always been so lame to me. It's like, oh, those those fucking losers, they want to go sign and like be able to make a living and travel and have proper distribution. (laughs) But did you guys feel that? Did that play a factor at all? Yeah. Yeah, we did. It was really evident on the Warp Tour. Um, it was it, it was a bummer, but 
<clears throat> because Blink were so funny and we didn't have, I, I don't know. I And they were cool. They were also backed by the best surfers in the world. When yeah. Kelly Slater and Rob Machado and, and like at that time are backing your band and touring around with you and coming to your shows, we're pretty damn authentic in that world. We The surf world, which where my passion lie, where I placed Blink, and the skateboard world, because Tom was a skater, the, we, had like, we had like the best skateboarders and best surfers in the world backing our band. So if there was some bands on the war tour that were all black shirted out and like, those guys are sellouts, blah, blah, blah. Like we almost thought it was kind of funny, but at the <laughs> same time, it was a bummer. <clears throat> but even some of the bigger bands, man, I mean, I'm not going to say names, but I've talked about the bands in this podcast so far. You know, there was definitely shit talking. And I I don't, I don't know. It was lame. You know, like I'd always, I, I'd, I'd always kind of get bummed out about it, but whatever. We, it, it got to a point where I think those bands were really cool. And then when, as Blink was growing, I always made sure that our tours always I always try to give back to the bands that helped us. I, I made it real clear. I really wanted to get Bad Religion on, on a tour with us. And we did. Yeah. I really wanted Rancid on a tour with us. And they did. Um, no Effects had us open for them in the Hollywood Palladium, which was a huge move by Fat Mike. And I'll never forget that call. When I got that call, I, I just jumped for joy. <clears throat> I was so excited. And I still do that today when I land good shows. You should see me. I'm a little kid. <laughs> that one show that No Effects put us on in Hollywood really moved the needle for us with K-Rock in L.A. Um, just those little things. I never got No Effects to play with us because Mike was so... Later on, he admitted he, he agreed he would do it, but it was sort of too late at that point. But I got no doubt. <laughs> We actually ended up getting Green Day, which was very hard. That was mm. a tough one. This was pre-American Idiot. This was on the decline on Green Day's. They were kind of going down. Um, but then they went up and then just dominated with American yeah. Idiot. Um, but it was really cool that, like, no doubts, and, and these bands came out and toured with us. Um, we also even played... And headlined like the Warp Tour anniversary. It was the 10 year anniversary or whatever in Minneapolis or somewhere where the Warp Tour and the Blink Tour combined and we made one massive event out of it. Oh, rad. I don't know if another big band would have done that. You know, I don't know if, if Eminem would have ever have done that. You know, Eminem was on the Warp Tour and then he blew up. And then if the Warp Tour was coming, would he emerge and created? I don't know. I doubt it. Yeah. But I love Kevin Lyman. I love the skateboarders on that tour. Um, I'm from the action sports world. That's why we did it. You know, you know, that's why I was a big fan yeah. for doing that kind of stuff. That decision seemed to affect Scott the most. Scott is quoted in a book as saying that from that decision forward, he was kind of halfway invested in Blink. I guess he really wanted to sign with Epitaph. Did you, I mean, feel that? Was Did you notice a change immediately? With Scott Rayner? Yeah. Um, he might have wanted to do that. 
uh, Epitaph was to a punk rock kid very sexy. Yeah. I mean, it's Brett Gerwitz. He's in Bad Religion. He's got, yeah, he might have. Um, and we did photo shoots that probably would not have happened at Epitaph. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they still were fully approved by Mark and Tom. Right, right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I vaguely, I don't know. The, I feel real. I feel real sad for Scott. Um, you, you know, like he kind of, he kind of did to to himself what what happened. You know, like, but at the same time, I was really stoked to get them to work with Travis too. So, I was really stoked to work with Scott. I loved working with Scott, and I was really stoked to work with Travis. And I love working with Travis. So I don't, I don't know. It's just the evolution of things, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, totally. So, so Dude Ranch gets recorded. I mean, during that time, did you know during those sessions and listening to those songs for the first time, did you listen to those and think, holy shit, these are at a whole new level or was there a whole new level of excitement? What did you think about that? Well, okay. Well, yes. Um, sonically, of course, we worked with a better producer. Um, we're not saying a better, but more experienced producer i mean oh it was a great was very good and did what he did he did a great job on you know what i mean everything is like just different levels you know what i mean yeah so um but yeah i mean when you heard josie and you heard uh damn it and i mean you know we were just like well those are cool but they still were they were still very much the next step from uh cheshire cat so it wasn't like they wrote american idiot right it was still blink (laughs) it wasn't like you know it wasn't anything that was like oh my gosh although it was but it it really was still it was cheshire cat 2.0 yeah you know better quality better you know, we had money so we can hire better, you know, producing and better equipment and mixing and, and stuff. We had money and we had money to market. it. And yeah. this was all pre-internet. I mean, you know, pretty early days of internet. Uh, so, I mean, did I know I had lightning in a bottle? No, I didn't. Did I know we had a better record than before? Yes. <clears throat> I'll never forget back in the day, KROQ in Los Angeles had this thing called the Furious Five at Nine. And once again, why I wanted to go with MCA was because they had a really good radio department. Mm. And so my best friend, Paul Gomez, called me, who was running Billabong at the time. And then ended up starting Hurley Clothing with Bob Hurley, which, you know, we were all sponsored by them and stuff. Oh, yeah. He, he called me up. I was living, Liz, I, I, we had ju- I had just bought my first house. For, it was like $150,000, <laughs> my first house in California. And I was like, I couldn't believe I was able to buy a house. Like, I was just tripping out. I remember I was like in my house for two months. And I get this call at about 9.05 p.m. And Paul calls me and he's like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. 
freaking Blink is on Furious 5 and 9. And I was like, <laughs> like what? Like, what? And, and like, we were fortunate enough that although we were in San Diego, we were still linked to Hollywood in yeah. LA, right? So kind of K-Rock was the leader at the time, man. Lisa Warden, who now she runs iHeartRadio, and Kevin Weatherly, like, dude, those dudes, those dudes and dudettes, <laughs> they <laughs> they were like the, the the top, man. If you were in with those guys, and somehow MCA got us in there. And that was the beginning of something that just never stopped. Wow. That was the first big indicator we got was Furious 5 at Night. Then the second one was we went and shot a video for Damn It, which I was in as the popcorn dude. Fun fact. Well, here's a bunch of fun facts. If you look at all the music videos I've been, most of them have done very well. So I'm very, uh, <laughs> I bring a lot to the table with my acting. <clears throat> um, but then when I saw that video on, there was a show on MTV. I think I, it might have been TRL, but I can't remember whatever the Furious 5 at 9 radio version was for MTV. I just remember at about five o'clock, they were like, watch MTV at five o'clock. And when I went in there and I sat down in my living room, and this was maybe like a few weeks later after Fear Five Nine, and I watched the damn it video on MTV. And you know, take this is 10 years after I started watching MTV was born 10 years prior or 12 yeah. years prior. I mean, I was born on MTV. To see that video on MTV, to hear our song on K-Rock, Bro, it was pretty gnarly. That's got to like, be so rad. Those were two things. If you have those two things, forget about it. It's on. And that was when all those punk bands and everyone started getting a little more snootier at us. Like, you know, it's just <laughs> like, oh, gosh, here we go. Um, but when you put a Blink-182 tour up on sale our tickets would fly off, the, yeah. you know? So I don't know. It was pretty I've, o- I've always heard your role on the Dammit video got expanded because it was so funny. What do you remember about that? Were you supposed to just be a background actor? Yeah. So Darren Doan was the director, funniest director. Um, yeah, dude, I don't know. They're like, oh, we're going to make Rick the popcorn guy. It was like, oh, and Tom and Mark thought it was so funny. You know, I've never done anything. I was actually going to school at SDSU as a film major, but not as an actor. I was more, so I'm like, yeah, well, I've got, you know, like film experience. <laughs> not really, yeah. but I didn't, I just, they're just, I just remember Darren Doan just go, just go like this, just go like this. And I was like, okay, dude, I'm like, I go to bed early. I like, do too. <laughs> at 10 o'clock, they would always make fun of me because I would just fall asleep. Like I I was like born into the wrong body to be in rock and roll. Like <laughs> I get up at 5 a.m. All the rockers, they don't get up till like 11. You know, it's like total wrong body. So that video went all night long. And I remember driving back into the valley at the place I was staying, watching the sunrise come over. The Holly, you know, you know, like over the I remember like watching the sun go over the Hollywood mountains. And I was just like, wow, I am so tired. 
And we had to shoot that scene over and over again. And Mm. I was so exhausted. I don't even, they just kept saying, do it. All right, now we're going to do, oh, we like that. And they they just kept expanding. There was real, (laughs) no real plan. It just kind of felt like it just morphed into like, I ended up getting the girl. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. So, so February 1998, we're getting into snow, snow core dates, which oh, is. Shit. You're digging yeah, deep here. Uh, this is allegedly at kind of a, a dark time in the band that we really don't know too much about. But my question is, do you happen to recall when the first time Travis filled in for the band was? This is something we do not know to this day. Well, I do remember. I got Blink to play with Madness. I think it was Madness in Santa Barbara. Because I was like, you know, like I said, I was a big Mod Ska fan. And Madness was one of my favorite bands. I was able to land some Madness dates. And we played with them in Santa Barbara at the Santa Barbara Bowl. And I believe the Aquabats, believe it was the Aquabats, opened for us. And prior to that, we had some... We had a situation go down with Scott where Mark and Tom were not stoked. And that's what led to the direction of where it went. Um, I just remember uh, Tom going, hey, can you go talk to Travis? I just remember that. And this was like not the Travis, you you know, a a much younger, innocent. Yeah. Not the total polar opposite of what I saw yesterday in Good Morning America with Travis (laughs) and the Kardashian girl. You know, he was just a kid that loved play drums and he was, you know, and and I remember we did a lot of dates with Aquabats and I remember they weren't too happy with me. Um, I was just the messenger. But <laughs> and then I remember Paul Gomez, my buddy who I, I mentioned earlier, he spoke to Travis. He had he knew him somehow. Um the very first show we played with travis i'd have to ask tom that um we have call it actually uh man i just i kind of got rid of all of those tour books um (laughs) last year when i cleaned my attic out it was filled with routings and stuff and i took them to the shredders um i don't recall the first show with travis but it was it had to have been in spring time so we know, just to to kind of go over the timeline of what we do know, is um, Scott was still on drums May 31st of 1998. They had a show on June 1st, which we assume Scott was on drums. And then there's a two-week break, okay? So whatever happened in that two weeks, we don't know. But on June 15th onward, 1998, Travis is on drums and Scott is never seen again. Um, you know, what... What, if anything, can you share about that situation? It's such a mystery and, and we just don't know, but ultimately, you know, what do you recall about that transition? Um, I'm, I'm texting Tom right now to ask him. Um, hopefully you'll give me an answer here. Um, yeah, so look, any kind of, thing like that it's sad totally for travis he was rad obviously it it went on to some giant um things for travis 
But, you know, I had already logged in a couple of years, if not three at that point with Scott. And Scott was a young kid. I think when I first started working with him, he was 16 or 17 years old, you know? So like, you know, I was in my late 20s, 28. And Tom is six years younger than me. And, you know, Scott was younger than Tom when I met him. So I was really sad, you you know, like, I don't know. It it was, I, I, it just wasn't, you know, anyone would not think that was a fun time, you you know, like having a, having all of a sudden I had now where I was like managing him. Now I have to look at him as like, Hey, on behalf of Mark and Tom, you know, it's just, yeah, there, there are some really bummer parts about being a manager sometimes. Yeah. Um, I just had to go through it with the bomb pops. Uh, Polly Van Dam left the bomb pops and she started the band with Jen Rasby. And I had to, de- I had to broker that all out. Like wasn't fun, you know, um, different band members come and gone through angels and airwaves. And, you know, it, it, those are the bummer. Those are kind of like not the rad times that I like to remember. So I don't remember a lot because I probably selectively chose not to remember it. But all I do remember is, is once we put Travis in this position, we noticed something that we didn't have prior. We noticed the sense of energy. We noticed a, a sense of musicianship that was you know, just super different. And, and Tom and Mark were just like blown away at Travis's ability to play. So he got in, you know, at a pretty good time um, with, uh, it was, uh, uh, take off your pants and jacket. We're getting into Enema. Yeah, getting uh, into 1999. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I mean, I'm sorry, Enema State. Yeah. I'm getting a long time ago, dude. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it went Cheshire Cat, uh, Dude Ranch, Enema the State. Yep. Take off your pants. Oh, that's right. That was the emo year. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Take yep. off your pants, and then uh, uh, self-titled. Then break. What? Yep. Then then hiatus. Then hiatus. The neighborhoods. Yep. And that was it. And then, then the then the Skiba records. Yep. So, yeah. So, um, the Enema of the State thing was really the when you asked me earlier, did I think with Dude Ranch we had something? Well, Enema of the State now was different. <clears throat> then we knew we had something. Like, yeah. That leads yeah. perfectly into my next question. With Travis on board, getting into the Enema sessions, you know, Jerry Finn's on board, listening to that yeah, stuff yeah. for the first time. I mean, what were you thinking when you heard this stuff? I'm like, holy shit, we got the guy that did Green Day's record. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Like, wow. How the hell did we get here? How did we get on the radar of Jerry Finn? Um, what a What an amazing talented producer so funny he would always give me shit for that because i love jack johnson he'd always give me shit um (laughs) and and 
dude, he was just able. So as the band now is really starting to grow, right? I mean, things are things are happening, dude. We're getting like the Tonight Show, Leno. Uh, you know, we're getting like real looks. Oh yeah. MTV, TRL. We're just like all over that shit. Um, it was nuts, dude. Um, that was the record where okay, we're on fire. Our promotions, our shows were really. I think you know now that I think about it, I think that was the record that Jay Boberg sat me down before it came out. I think that was the one where he pulled me in office and said, "You're going to headline Universal Amphitheater." Now that mm. I recall, um, yeah, that makes more sense. Uh, yeah, that was that was it, and that was the year Tahoe Agency went away. I believe that was right around that time. Rick, <laughs> we're like on fire. We just did an entire deal with this amazing promoter named Melissa Miller. Um, she was so rad. She bought our entire tour for the country. Oh my gosh. And she loved us. She loved me. She loved the band. Like she was so rad. And we did this with Rick. And then when it was all done, he called, he's like, hey dude, I gotta talk to you. I'm like, what's up? He's like, I'm retiring. I was like, what? Wait, what? And Rick left. Tahoe Agency went away. Mm. And then that's when I went with my really close friend, Daryl Eaton, at CAA. Gotcha. I met on the Warp Tour. But I remember sitting in a diner after surfing in Manhattan Beach with Daryl. And he was like going through the route. And he's like, dude, this is so gnarly. Like. Because he helped, he booked the Warp Tour. CAA booked the Warp Tour for Kevin Lyman. So he was booking Blake at $250 a night, $250. Oh, my gosh. And then fast forward, you know, we're looking at deal memos, dude, that, like, we're like, what the? <laughs> you know? And he's, and I remember he's like, he's like, this is insane. So, yeah, that record, that campaign, those songs. The, the ability of Mark, Mark, Tom, and Travis to go out and tour as much as they did. I mean, I, I, I kept them busy, man. Yeah. I kept them busy. And sometimes it's a double-edged sword doing that. But at the same time, you've you got to strike while the iron's hot. I worked those boys. They were tired. They were really tired. And, you know, like, they missed out on a lot of things. Like, they didn't have regular friends. Like you would have, or you know, anyone who just comes up a normal situation, they would be gone for nine months out of the year. Yeah. And so they they missed out on a lot of stuff, but they also were part of a lot of cool things. You know, they were able to be in movies and you know, American Pie movies. Those are a big deal at, at that time. And um, MCA made a lot of this possible for us. They saw what we had built, and they executed and they were very proud that they had their green day you know and that's what i wanted back then i didn't want to play fifth fiddle to no effects and rancid i wanted to be the only punk rock band on a major label if we hit it i knew if we hit a home run we're going to hit it we're going to be like on the walls next to the greatest some of the greatest artists of all time yeah um so i don't know that's, so 
with what's my age again and and all the small things and adam song and that kind of album cycle and such i mean how much did your guys lifestyles change i mean did it just get so crazy it was scary or how did you all handle yeah yeah dude i mean we would be like on the bus and you know back in the day when you were just like oh i want to can, can you see if they'll send me some shirts you know billable and you know it's like man now i want to build a house and i want to like i want to get i really like this new truck and you know i i remember tom the first money he ever got the first real money from the publishing deal i used my commission as a down payment to buy a house he goes out and uses his he went out and bought like a stereo system for his apartment <laughs> like that was like it was like the stuff like a rock club and we would made so much we gave him so much shit for that you know like he's okay. like dude i just went down to circuit city and spent all my money and freaking love it and we're just like dude like what so tom was always like the spender i felt like mark was kind of a little more uh you know a little more uh, savvy with his money but you know but you know, they were just excited, you know, like these kids never seen money like that. And fortunately, we, you know, we we got them in with financial advisors at the beginning. And, and I think they they really were smart with their money and, you know, had investments going and stuff. And and, and but, yeah, you know, it, it, it was fun. It was like going from the van to like a nice super nice bus you know like yeah that in the in the music world like in the rock world like if you if you can get out of a van and into <laughs> a bus where someone actually drives you oh my gosh it's like heaven and so you know we had one bus and it was two buses and then it was like a, a, a box truck then a semi truck and you know it's just it's just crazy then it went to each guy had their own bus and then it went like oh well you know, I don't want to ride the bus on that 10 hour drive. I'm just going to fly private. You know, it's like it's watching the whole thing, you know, go from like showing up and having Taco Bell burritos falling out of the van to getting police escorts out of a 20,000 sold out venue. Yeah, dude, it was, it was pretty crazy ride. I mean, and I was very, very fortunate to have been there with those guys. And, you know, I was very lucky. It's, it seems like it happened so fast. That's what's that's what's crazy. It was I mean, a whirlwind. Yeah. So what's the pressure like to follow that up? You know, we get into take off your pants and jacket. What's from a label perspective, from your perspective, you just crushed it with Enema. What's that like having to follow that up? Well, <clears throat> that was an interesting record and that was an interesting time. Emo was really coming in. Um, and I never got in the way. I would never tell those guys how to write songs because they were writing the songs that were resonating with me, which I felt I represented a lot of their fan base with the, with the surf community and the skate community and the punk rockers and, you know, the pop punk rockers, I would say, not really the crusties, but you know, the surfer kind of punk rocker listeners. Um, and then I remember, and I know Mark just posted something about this recently, which was kind of funny because it 
it was kind of cool. It was the first time it was ever posted. But they're like, hey, come down and um, listen to the demos. And at the time, they were really obsessed with Saves the Day and Jimmy World and uh, the Postal Service, um, which uh, Postal Service went on to be, um, shoot, I forgot the name of, uh, well, there was a band called the Postal Service, and they went on to become a, a different band that everyone liked, and I'm spacing on the name. I'm sure you can look that up. But so I go down there. And at this point, I have two people working for me. I have Kristen Warden, who's the sister of Lisa Warden, who ran K-Rock, mm. and Chris Georgian. And Chris Georgian and I and Lisa, we go down. I'm not Lisa, Kristen. We, we go down to the studio and we listen to all this music that they wrote and recorded. And they played me the whole record. And they're like, so like what do you think? Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm listening to the record and I'm seriously, dude, I'm like, like, uh, I was kind of tripping out. <laughs> and they're like, what, what? And I was just like, I, I don't know what this is. Mm. Like, you went really hardcore, right? You went almost dark. They wrote an emo record. And, and I'm like, I don't know. I, I just don't, I don't get it and I don't see it. And, and I remember they got really tripped out on me because I never, ever got in the way of their, of their music like, or, or ever made a I was just always like a fan. And I'm like, I'm just telling you from my gut that <laughs> coming off of, Anima the state. I, and, and I said that um, I would believe I, I believe that you will lose fans. Mm. And I go, I go, I don't know what's going on in your brains. Look, dude, this was a long time ago. I don't know what's going on in your brains, but you, you got to you got to give your fans who you've earned over these last three albums. Like you got to stay cohesive. You got to stay consistent. We have momentum. People want you. You're the theme song of their summers. You're like, you're their first kiss. You're their like, you know. And I remember they got really bummed on me, dude. I was kind of tripped out. <laughs> and so they they freaking went home, and Mark and Tom in minutes wrote first aid in the rock show. Oh my gosh! And they're like, are you happy now? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Yeah, actually, I am. <laughs> okay, and then, then shit, those songs blew up. Oh yeah, for sure. I just got a text from Tom. Okay. Let's see, here. Let's see what Tom remembers. All right. Um, I said, do you recall your first show with Travis? He said Fresno or Bakersfield, maybe. Then back then with Madness. Okay. Or in San Jose or something the next night. So. That's pretty close. Okay. Yeah, you I, were. It sounds like to me we were on tour with Madness. And I had to I think I I think I had to deliver the news to Scott. Mm. I think this is all coming back. I really blocked it out. So so um 
And then since we were on tour with the Aquabats, I think Travis filled in. The story so goes. Nice. Yeah. The, the infamous story is that Travis had to learn the set in 45 minutes, came out and crushed it. But I'm we just. Sure that, yeah. So that's it. So there you go. You got your luck closer than you were. Yeah, totally. It, it was yeah, the we're... Madness tour. And dude, okay. Hey, stars align, right? I'm a freaking huge Madness fan. I, uh, that was one of my favorite bands. What if I did not put Blink on tour with Madness? Yeah. Dude, Dude, isn't that weird? The amount of fate in this whole Blink story is, it's fucking crazy, man. You know, going back to uh, Tom gets kicked out of high school, transfers, joins a a group of friends who one of them, Carrie Key, is dating Mark's sister who connects. I mean, it's crazy. It's It's a crazy spider web. Yeah, it it, yeah. it really is. Um, I don't want to keep you too much longer. This is awesome, man. I don't know how you're doing on time, but I do want to touch base on quickly the uh, the takeoff album, which actually is my favorite. That's why it's the podcast cool. logo. <laughs> cool. So I'm glad you I'm glad you didn't completely tell him to throw it all away. Uh, but the uh, the liner notes on one of the vinyl records of that, Mark said that is the first time in the band that there was tension between he and Tom over the writing process. Were you aware of that? Did you feel that? How did that play out? Yeah, you know, obviously the band went on hiatus and obviously things happened. Um, Yeah, there was. And, you know, I recall things. I remember things, um, but, you know, some of them were private. Um, I just remember you know, there was frustrations. That's that's the best I can say it. You know, I, I'm not going to point fingers or pick sides or nothing. I just, yeah. you know, there was frustrations. And, y- you know, fame is weird, man. I, I watched the guys change. I literally saw change happening. And it was, fame could be a great thing and it can also be a very destructive thing. Yeah. I mean, it's just for any human. But yeah, there was there was frustrations and there were tensions for sure. Um, You know, Blink's issues every there's not one band I know of that doesn't have issues. No one just goes out on tour and it's just harmonious. We love you throughout the whole entire career. It doesn't work like that. You're in vans, you're in stinky vans and tired on bus you you get exhausted right um but yeah there was there was there was a little bit of you know styles were changing a little bit you can you know things were things were changing gotcha yeah and so out of that we get the boxcar record which obviously you know is a big point in the band that's i could totally see both sides of how that could be awkward and probably for you as well the beauty of that yeah, I mean, it sucked for me. Um, I was proud of it, but at the same time, it sucked. You know, I I was, it was hard because, um, to me, we had Blake. Like we worked so hard, and this is now as a manager, a side project is introduced. Yeah. So. That's another thing, you know, like I never came across a band that's that has had done that. Now, this is normal. 
side projects are normal for a lot of bands that become very well known. I mean, I've had, I remember last year I was having conversations with Nick Hexum of 311 and, and, you know, he wanted to, you know, like everyone, when you play the same songs over and over and over again, you're gonna probably get bored. I yeah. mean, you know, I was watching Green Day at the Hell Omega Tour in San Diego last uh, summer or fall, whatever that was. And I'm sitting here watching, looking up at 55,000 people holding their lighters, singing that same lineup of Green Day songs that we all know we've memorized at this point. You know, yeah. every word, you know, every harmony. And I was like looking up there and I see Billy just going off and I'm just like, Man, he doesn't seem like he's bored of playing these songs. Like, shit. But I know he's done side projects. And I know that he's had creative outlets. And I know every band has, you know. And and Tom wanted to have a creative project that I believe was more rocking and, and, and harder um, than Blink was. Blink was more maybe more poppier or something. I don't know, whatever it was going through Tom's head, but it was cool. It was super cool it, for me. It was fine. I'm like, okay, well, Tom, yeah, we'll support you. Let's do whatever you want to do, you know? like. But then when he asked Travis to be in the band, that's when, you know, for me as a manager, it's just like this started getting hard. Mm. Because now you've got two thirds of Blink in this band, and now Mark is on the outside. And it was just really, it was hard, man. It, it, it was really hard. And it put tension on my relationship with Mark. It put tension, you know, tensions just started building. But you can't blame Tom for being creative. And, and, and the Boxcar songs were great. I mean, the record went gold. Yeah. It wasn't some record he did and it just got, sh- you know, shelved. I mean, look at look at like what Pearl Jam guys have done. They've all put out side records and like, you know, like I said, everyone has done it, you know. Yeah. But it I mean, from a manager standpoint, it was like, well, what am I supposed to do? Like not manage Tom DeLong? Right. <laughs> you know, but at the same time, I know Mark was really bummed on it. And so that was my first time for me as a manager where I'm like, this isn't fun right now. It was the first time in the whole job where I'm like, this isn't fun. This mm. is this is like kind of beyond me. I almost need like a like a degree and doctor, <laughs> like being like a psychiatrist or something at this point. Oh um, my gosh! But you know, it 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 ran more so. Um, Tom was able to do his creative outlet. Um, Travis played on it. Um, Mark actually, I remember they kind of. There was some tension, but then he showed up, and I think he played the first show at the Glass House. Um, yeah, and he's on a song, and he's on, yeah, Mark guest vocals on a song called Elevator, so that was nice yeah. to see that happen. And I think with Tim Armstrong. The beauty of that, the beauty of that album is that without it, Tom has said, we don't get Untitled, which is heralded as a as their masterpiece by a lot of Blink fans, favorite album all time. So in a sense, it's almost one of those things that had to happen, as weird as that is. Oh, yeah, no, it it, it had to happen. It was going to happen. I mean, what I've learned as a manager, you know, like band members, you know, they're, they're, they're artists and it's their art. It's their art. 
some paint, some write songs. Um, but that's, um, yeah, it had to happen. So heading in off the Untitled album, you know, more touring, more touring. We're getting into 2004, 2005. Uh, things kind of on Sue as far as arguments go. At that time, I'm just curious from your standpoint, I mean, did you have a sense that this thing was going to blow up eventually, or did this truly just catch you um, by surprise? Well, like you said in Mark's liner notes, tension just started building. Like, you know, people were growing apart. People, it just, it was like, a, it was just happening. You, you know, it, it's like, it's not like one person, oh, you know, there was no drugs involved. There was nothing, no one was stealing from anyone or no one was cheating on each other's girlfriend. You know, it was nothing like those like rock stories you would hear from like maybe the Motley Crue years and stuff. Yeah. These are three young, talented humans that were really good at what they did as musicians. And they also started businesses. I mean, Travis started Famous Stars and Straps and then he started Meet the Barkers with Shane's ex-wife. and and Tom and Mark started Atticus and Macbeth and Loser Kids. And so they're now not just only in a rock band, they're like businessmen. Yeah. So everything just started evolving. It, it, it's just, it is what it is. And, you know, I did my best to hold on as long as, you know, keep it all together as long as I could. I mean, I fought all the way to the very bitter end. Um, to where I got the call that Tom's no, we're going with Skiba, you know, mm. all the way to the bitter end. So, <clears throat> I mean, I tried very hard. I mean, I got Tony Robbins involved and I don't know if you know who he is, but dude, he's one of the best life kind of like, you know, st- coaches in the world. Oh, wow. He's coached every president, every major baseball, football, NBA. I mean, he's massive. He was helping me, you know, and I thought that was very cool of Tony Rollins. I mean, um, CAA helped me get that. I mean, this is the kind of league we're playing in now. We're playing like, you know, and it is what it is. Um, Blink still lives on. And Mark is, thank God, he's still healthy now and got through all his stuff. and. and Travis is still there ripping. I, I hung out with Travis uh, about six, seven months ago in Las Vegas. It was super cool to get caught up with him. And uh, I still talk to Tom here and there. He lives in my town. And I've been actually talking to Mark a bunch. And he's he's putting out some memoirs. And um, he asked me to get interviewed for it, which is really nice. And But it was just, it was a really magical time. Um, and yeah, I really stoked i was part of it you know yeah so hiatus happens you go on to work with angels and airwaves um and then do you are you still representing them during neighborhoods up through 2015 that's timeline wise i don't know when you kind of stopped managing blink to be honest yeah so when blink went on their hiatus um angels and airwaves was born right so then Chris Georgian and Kristen and I uh, worked with uh, Angels and Airways. Mark and Travis went on to start Plus 44. Um, and we were just like, 
you know, I never thought I was going to be in this position. You know, I never wanted it. It just evolved. And, um, you know, whatever. If I had my way, I would have stayed straight Blink-182 all the way through. I would have been right up there today with Red Hot Chili Peppers and, you know, Pearl Jams and, and never had broken up. Yeah. Um, but if that was my way, but you know, shit happens. Um, (laughs) but angels was fun too. I mean, we got that song, the adventure and, and we got a gold record and, you know, we're like, okay, well, whatever, you know, we're good at what we do as management. We got to break this and we got to go. And we, so we just started over and, and took Tom's vision and took it as far as we can go. And then at a point where Tom was like, I remember he's like, I'm, you know, I'm probably never going to get back in the blink ever and ever. You know, back in my head, I was just like, oh, I just miss the jokes that, you know what I mean? Like Angels was more serious. Angels was bitching. Don't get me wrong. I really enjoyed it. I really did. It, it, it was it was great. I loved the identity. I thought Tom was brilliant. You know, he really did great on that on that project. But Bleak was like still my baby. It was like, yeah, I don't know. It, 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 it's just Angels was different, more serious, more mature. Uh, and Blink was fun and goofy, kind of more big dummy me. You know what I mean? Like kind of more, right? Whatever. But yeah. um, but then, you know, then we got that horrific news of Travis was in this bad plane crash. Yeah. And I remember we were in Phoenix, we were playing with Weezer. I think Angels was main support for Weezer. And we got the call and stuff. And like, I remember Tom just tripped out. Like, he really, he, it hit him hard. And um, fast forward, you know, he met back up with Travis and then Tom got back in the band. Yeah. And, um, yeah, then we went out and did the, I think, the Honda Civic tour. Yep. It was 2009. And then I think we did Neighborhoods in 2010 or 11. I can't remember. It was so long ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it just didn't feel the same to me. I don't know. It just... I, I don't know. It just it just felt like something was coming back again, you know, and mm. can't really put my finger on it. But I guess it's just evolution. I don't know. Um, and then, you know, the rest is history, you know. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, it had to had to be deja vu for you. Like, here we go again. Yeah, it was kind of weird. <laughs> I, I was like, wow, I couldn't believe we got a second shot. But for me as management, Mark and Travis went off and got new management. Gotcha. And so when Tom came back and we got Blink back together, uh, I then at that point, I had to work with two other managers, uh, which was, you know, it was challenging. I liked it though. I, I Sometimes I, I just got, you know, I just go, hey, you know what? It is what it is and I'm lucky I'm still here. And, and you know, first I was, it was, it was hard, you know, like this was a band that I built literally from the, the ground up all the way to the highest levels yeah and then and then it went away and then now all of a sudden i had to manage it with other managers and 
but they ended up being cool. Um, the one manager, he managed Eminem and um, the other manager, uh, he, who still, I believe, works with Travis to this day. Um, he did a lot of like DJ stuff and, it, and he, he was managing DJ AM. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, but we you know what? Collectively, we, the three of us put together some good stuff. And, and then the second round came. That sucked. Um, I was so bummed. I, I was just whatever. And then Tom just, you know, it just it didn't work out. Like, you know. Yeah. Um, but the good news is I do believe today here in 2022, um, Tom has very good relationships with everybody. Travis and Mark and Tom have very good relationships. Uh, I stopped working with Tom as a manager a few years ago. Um, he just, he indicated to me that he, you know, he's got a new life, new wife and new kids. And, and, you know, he wasn't in need of a music manager anymore because he didn't really do much. He, yeah. Since then he's done, I think he went out on tour with Angels and Airways one time. So um, and he really went after his to the stars thing and I, he's doing great. Uh, he proved to the world that there are aliens, according to the U S Navy. <laughs> I know we got it on yeah. front page CNN. It's crazy. Yeah, he's that dude, that dude will find aliens where aliens shouldn't exist. And he found <laughs> them. So Tom's brilliant. He is, he's brilliant. And he's very talented. Mark is the same. He's very, Mark cares so much about Blink. And Travis is just like freaking Travis Barker, dude. Like he's, he's going to be on this Kardashian show I saw yesterday. Good morning. I'm like stretching to go out to go surfing and it's all coming up the Kardashians. And I'm like, oh, what's this? And then there's Travis and I'm like, <laughs> wow, dude. Like nice. having flashbacks and driving around in the van and having pizza fights with them. And it's just, it's really cool to see how Travis has evolved into this, like this massive like entity and not to mention everyone wants to work with him from a music oh, yeah. standpoint. Yeah. So I, I'm really proud of him and stoked for him. And um, I hope he's got a, a very good life ahead of him with his new bride to be and Mark cancer-free stoked you know like he seems oh, yeah. pretty happy and tom is i think he's trying to find a real bigfoot or something like that like, <laughs> you know yeah. so everyone seems to be happy and i'm happy and i'm grateful and i'm still managing bands and i'm like still applying the same things that i did in 94 95 here in 2022 and it's working for me, I'm, I'm seeing my bands growing very similar to the way Blink is and Blink did. So I just love managing bands. It gives me goosebumps. I love being on things like this. I I don't do this often, but 
I love Blink and it, it, it's everything for me, you know, like I went in this house I was able to buy because of the Blink-182 and I've been in this house for 25 years. So. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, dude. I, I can't thank you enough for your stories and time on this, dude. It's rad, but I want to, I want to give you a chance to talk about what you're doing now because, you know, on your Instagram, which is at Big Dummy Jam, you seem to be all over and you're at a ton of shows. So tell us what you're up to now uh, these days and what bands you're working with. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Um, so about three and a half years ago, I, I decided I was just going to live in Catalina Island all summer, which is an island off of Los Angeles. And I've done it for a lot of summers. And I was sitting there and I'm just like, what am I freaking doing? <laughs> I'm like on this boat. I'm just like, I got really into free diving. I was getting scared of great white sharks because they were literally swimming around everywhere. Oh, and I'm shit. Like, Dude, I got to do something. And out of nowhere, my daughter comes up to me and she's all, Dad, I want to talk to you. And I'm like, what's up? And she goes, I want to do what you did. I want you to teach me. And I was like, wait, got three kids. And I never pushed my music stuff on them because I felt like, all right, I guess I'm retiring. Like, I'm kind of done, you know, like, I don't know. I had a good ride. And she said, I want to do it and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, wow. So it lit this fire under me. And so I go, all right, well, let me find something. So I told you earlier, I'm obsessed with the Go-Go's, like obsessed. I've been obsessed my whole life. <laughs> I go, I want to find the next Go-Go's. That was my mission. So I, I searched high and low. I went, I, I would, I'd start following bands. I'd get their music, listen, no, next one, next one, next one. And then finally, this one band I find called the Aqua Dolls pops up. Surf guitar. Sounds kind of like the Go-Go's. Like the whole vibe, DIY and all this stuff. So I start like, I'm like trying to connect, but they don't have like a phone number. They, they just have a DM. So I'm like <laughs> this 49 year old dude DMing like a 22 year old girl on Instagram. Like it was so bad, dude. And, and I'm just like, no, like your band's rad. Like I have an idea. Like, dude, Do you need a manager. Ignored me, ignored me, ignored me. And I'm like, freaking hell, I know this is the band, but I can't get in. So I, there's this band in San Diego that I knew that sort of knew the Aqua Dolls. And I'm like, and I'm like, you guys need to vouch for me. Call her up and vouch for me. So they called her up and, sh and they vouched for me and she called me. And then I started talking to her. And so I went and saw her at a show. Her band played in La Jolla three and a half years ago. They had some success in 2014. They got paid $300 and got ripped off by the promoter at the show I went to. And I'm like, I don't even care. You guys are rad. I go, I got an idea. So I call my buddy Smitty, who manages Pearl Jam. And I go, dude, I know how much you love the Go-Go's. You've got more Go-Go stories than anybody. Your band used to open for the Go-Go's at the Whiskey. Hear me out. And I laid out my whole game plan. He, he met me. And Paul Gomez, my other buddy, who I talked to about earlier, who started Hurley. I go, you all got to meet me at this shitty club in Orange County called The Locker Room. It's a DIY venue put on by gutter punks. And 
So we go. These are big time, freaking successful dudes. We roll into the show. There's like 20 people there, <laughs> and and we're watching Aqua Dolls play. And the Aqua Dolls go, "Hey!" And now everyone get down, get down on the floor, get down. And they have this little shtick, and everyone gets down except Smitty. This dude manages Pearl Jam. He ain't getting down on the floor. <laughs> and she stops the show and she goes, Smitty, get down on the floor. Oh. And Smitty's all, damn, dude. And then he got down on the floor and we saw the floor and we all jumped up. He's like, I'm in. Fast forward, here we are three and a half years later. <clears throat> they played Lollapalooza. Austin City Limits multiple times. Been on tour with White Reaper. They're on a current U.S. tour with Sitting on Stacy. They're on Incubus, Sublime, Shed Tour this summer. Damn. And I've got more stuff coming. They're playing with Travis Barker and Snoop Dogg in Vegas on May 14th. Their guarantees went from peanuts to real guarantees. They're now booked by William Morris. Dude, I, I, this is what I do. I see things, I put it together, I plug in all my friends that are passionate about it, and I wake up at five in the morning and I just do not stop thinking until I can get this band to be where they can make their own, where they can pay their own bills. These girls are starving, they're now not so starving, but I want them to buy a house. I want them to have, you know, I totally believe it. My daughter tour manages them. Oh, rad. She manages, she does day-to-day management for them and sitting on Stacy and the Bomb Pops. My daughter lit the fire under my ass. I've trained my daughter. I go on tour with my daughter. That's what, that's where I'm at. So I'm, I'm with sitting on Stacy. They're signed to Republic Records, um, major label. Awesome. They're a great ska kind of punk rock band that is really kind of like, to me, the new Blink-182, period. Sick. I, it's insane. They're, they're fun. They're, they're, their dick jokes are not as good as Tom and Mark. <laughs> That's tough to beat. They're not as good. They're not even the same ballpark, all right? So <laughs> sonically, they, have, they, they remind me of Blink. So it's in my wheelhouse. The Bomb Pops are on Fat Records. They just toured with Dropkick Murphys. They did the whole U.S. tour with Dropkick. Um, my singer, she went up, and the singer of Dropkick had her come up every night and, play, and sing. So three years ago, dude, I was sitting on a boat. I had zero clients, and now I've got three working bands that are doing great. Uh, sitting on a Stacey tour with the Jonas Brothers, dude. Oh, man. I, so I'm back in the game, and I've got three really sick bands. I'm super excited. And I've used all my experience from Blink-182 and New Fan Glory and Pennywise and Angels and Airways and everything I've done. And I'm plugging in and I'm passing it on to my daughter. And as soon as these bands get to a certain point, you know, 10 years from now, I'm hoping my daughter is going to be on the cover of Polestar magazine as the most badass female manager out there. And that's where I'm at right now. And I still surf every day. So that's that's awesome, dude. It's it's you seem happy. You seem like just hell so yeah. passionate about it. It's dope, dude. I love to see it. Thank All right. You. I'm going to I'm going to get you out of here with some rapid fire and then we'll right. wrap up. I appreciate your time, man. So uh, rapid fire favorite Blink album. Well, for me, 
I'm going to have to say Cheshire Cat because that was all my best memories <clears throat> when it was raw. You know, it was just raw. I mean, Carousel, M&M's, dude, come on. That was the shit. <laughs> this leads into the next one. Favorite Blink song, all time. My favorite Blink song, I'm going to have to say, although I know sonically the, the, the Robert Smith song and like Miss You and all that, but dude, there's something that gives me the goosebumps when they when Mark starts playing that bass of Carousel. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm going back again to, you know, look, they're all great. I mean, first date video was the my favorite video of all time of Blink. <laughs> you, you know, but I just when you hear that do 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 I mean I'm and then the Tom comes in with the guitar yes dude chills right now and that's on their first record you know on their first kind of real release not Buddha Buddha was just a demo yeah um all right so so there you go yeah dude it's hard to beat that one for sure uh looking back what's kind of your favorite memory of those days it's probably so hard to pick one but what sticks out um the most laughs I would have to say was the Pennywise Australia Taylor Steele surf movie premiere in Australia. Mm. Nothing beats those laughs. Nothing. Because we did not care. We loved VB beer, Victoria Bitter. We would laugh. We, were, we couldn't believe we were in Australia. Um. I think those memories were amazing, but there were so many when, when Blink won the MTV VMA for all the small things, when I was there in the audience, I mean, dude, when they said their name, I jumped so high in the audience. I was screaming. Mm. I was like, you know, that was a very special. My wife was with me. <clears throat> that was special. When they won their first VMA, I would have to say that and that Australia tour, you know, from the fun factor all the way to an accomplishment factor. Yeah. Um, that was heavy. That was that moment was heavy. Okay. So I'm a big blink collector, obviously, as you can see behind me, I've got a lot of yes. memorabilia. Is there anything that you held on to throughout the years, like your favorite memento from that time period? Anything super rad? If you give me one second, I'll grab it. Let's do it. I want to see it. And this just backs up. This backs up the last answer. Oh man, the music award, pretty rad. Yeah, those went hand in hand. That's it. No big, no big deal. All right. I've, uh, got, I've got a lot of gold records, um, and platinum records and everything, but that is the shit. That's pretty rad, dude. All right, final question. And again, dude, thanks so much for your time. This has been so rad. Um, just anything you want to say to to the fans? To all the Blink One Eighty Two fans out there, um. I just want to thank you for all your support over all the years. I mean, young and old, and it was very special and it meant a lot to Mark, Tom, Travis, Scott. Um, it meant a lot to them. And I know, I, I know that the momentum of, of, in the frenzy that these fans were for this band is what fueled these guys. And when they were fueled, I was fueled. And so thank you. I mean, geez, thank you. <laughs>
All right. There you have it. The one and only Rick DeVoe. Rick, thanks so much for your time, dude. This was rad. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan.